What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the world's number one e-commerce podcast, Modern Commerce. What's up, Doug? Hello, hello. I like that one. That's good. Brant, what's up? How's it going? I wish you guys could have seen Brant's face. I was dancing to the intro music, and then I realized I was on uh, video, and I kind of got self-conscious, but <laughs> Brant had, uh, he was giving me the weird look. Can I ask a question that I'm a little self-conscious about? So I saw a clip on TikTok of the BFF podcast and um, they were talking about the word mid. Okay. Yeah. I think I saw this one. Did you see it? Yeah. So I'm, like, I'm, a like, four, I'm a 41 year old male with kids that are 13 and 16. Mm-hmm. So mid has entered my yeah, vocabulary. Like, Yo, you use mid? Are you really using mid? That's the clip? Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> And then I remembered that a few uh, uh, episodes ago, I called our podcast entrance music mid. Ooh. And I'm just wondering if any of our listeners are judging me for that. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be leaving mid because my kids use it so much, but. You know what I say? Follow the trends, baby. Keeps you young. <laughs> Keeps you young. I, I, I try to do that. Okay, so mid is an acceptable term for this mid, podcast? Of course. Yeah, mid yeah. freaking. What else does it say? Cap. Cap. Uh, My kids say cap all the time. Cap. Cap's a little bit older. What's another one? I'm. I'm is this that's, what people tune that's, in for? That's bussin. Bussin. Oh, uh, yeah. That's bussin. My kids say that all the time. Well, speaking of the older demographic, I've got some, we got some hot spice that just dropped yesterday that we're going to talk about. And we had a really interesting conversation about this with lunch, kind of having a pre-show, pre-production chat. I'm excited to get into this. So yesterday on Twitter, Adam Mossery, who is a product manager at Facebook over Instagram, he posted a video tweet. He probably posted this on Instagram, I'm sure, but we saw it on, I saw it on Twitter. Currently has 1.9 million views, 1,271 retweets. 8,600 quote tweets, 6,600 likes. And he basically, I'm just going to, I'm just going to. There's a lot going on on Instagram right now. We're experimenting with a number of different changes to the app. And so we're hearing a lot of concerns from all of you. So I wanted to take a few moments and clarify a few things. Okay, we're not going to play the whole thing, but you get the gist. This is the uh, classic customers are pissed. Mm-hmm. And we're going we're gonna to try to address it. So I'll just do a quick recap. You guys fill in the gaps here. But he basically says, hey, we're making some changes. Some of you are seeing a new version of the app, which he clarified, I think, very intentionally. This is only 1% of users that looks kind of like TikTok. He calls it a full, full screen version of the app. So there's that. He also, and he says, hey, this is an experiment. We're just testing it. There's only 1% of users who have it right now. Then he also says, we believe video is going to play a very big part in the future of Instagram, which we can talk about some of the feedback that people are saying to this video. That's pissing a lot of people off. Um, So he says, hey, we love our photo heritage, but we're going to keep pushing forward with video, just so you know, guys. And then the third thing he says hey, we've started, we, we believe in creators, we believe in small creators, we want to help boost those creators. So you may see things in your feed that you don't subscribe to. Recommendations. Recommendations. And Our word for the For You page. 
Yep. <laughs> and he kind of says, I think if I'm right, he's like, yeah, we know they're not good. You're getting stuff that's not tuned. Yep. So people are, people are kind of upset. So that's kind of the recap. Let's go with Doug. Like, why do you think they're doing this? I think it's pretty obvious that TikTok has had a massive impact on pop culture, social media, entertainment, and the way that people consume content and video from the internet. And I think that their Instagram is staring in the mirror saying to themselves, if we don't make a pivot here, there may be irreparable damage to the number of users that use our platform. They just could just permanently migrate to TikTok. Which it's funny because I think Facebook has, for a lot of good reasons, a lot of negative connotation in the United States as a company that does not do right. Well, TikTok is owned by basically the Chinese government. And so you kind of have to pick your poison here, I Mm -hmm. think, a little bit. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't think it's anything less than that. I don't think this is necessarily about anything aside from whether or not people are being honest in their evaluations about video and Instagram or why they love Instagram, people are voting with their logins, with their clicks, uh, another version of people voting with their feet, mm-hmm. which is like, this is where all the users are going. Yeah. Um, I think TikTok's up to 80 million MAU, monthly active users. So they need to respond in a very similar way that they have done in the past. Um, Instagram stories is a ubiquitous part of their product now, but it wasn't when it launched and it was a complete ripoff of Snapchat. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a playbook that they've done before. They're going to probably do it again. And that when you are the dominant financial, um, company in the space, you, and you have all the users, you have the opportunity to maybe enter in as a second mover and take advantage of all the network effects that you already have in place. Mm-hmm. So that's probably probably how I would read it at a very, very base level. Yep. Um, there's a lot to add on top of that, but we're going to get to that. So do you, does anyone know like user base for, on TikTok versus Instagram? We didn't Inst- that Instagram up. is 120 million in the US, MAU, and TikTok is 80. Okay, let's get in there. So, Doug, you said something that I think is interesting. They Stories was a ripoff of Snapchat. And there's kind of this theme that happens in the technology space where one company will introduce something new, and it's, off, it's often like very unique take. And it takes off, and then everyone copies it. And they bring it into their own app. Um, there's a couple questions I want to get into here, but Brant, just from your perspective, kind of same question. Why do you think Instagram is doing this? Is it to just keep up with TikTok? Do they really think that video is the future? Like, what's your, what's your read? I think what a lot of people don't understand, especially if you're a public company, is that you have to grow. Mm-hmm. There's, it doesn't matter how big you are, you have to keep growing. And so when you're a company as big as these companies are, where you're dealing with the hundreds of millions of users, you have to get down to real kind of, base 
um, I don't know, like human psychology and try and predict where the population as a mass is, is going to go over time. And when you see something like TikTok start to take off, it's just, you don't have any real choice. And so, you know, people can sit back and say, well, Instagram was fine the way it was, and it served this specific purpose in my life. It doesn't matter. Yep. They're, they're on this treadmill that they can't get off of. And part of it is perpetuated by the fact that, you know, they have to grow quarter over quarter to make money for their investors. Mm. And at this point, their investors are, you know, the, the public market. It's definitely been controversial. Um, if you look at the tweet, like I said, there's thousands of comments. If you scroll through your TikTok, there's tons of takes on this. A lot of people complaining. Um, Which is so ironic and hilarious, by the way. Well, I'm going to use this competing platform and its video-based solution to complain about <laughs> photo-sharing app Instagram. <laughs> there was one I shared with you guys. I think the guy was fairly well-known. I'd never seen him, but he was kind of walking down the street, and um, he had a pretty funny take. He's like, oh, what happened to my pictures? What happened to my friends? Oh, you can see that, but you have to watch these 15 stand-up videos that you don't even like to get to it. Um, so there's a lot of kind of um, unrest with at least some percentage of the community, and um, it's all over the place, you know, and it's mostly negative. So I want to just ask you, Brent, you've been building products for a long time. How do you know, like, when to listen to that customer feedback and when to drive towards your vision of the future? I think basically like the the best people at doing this tend to have been with the company for a long time. They have a lot of the historical context. They're able to kind of take into fact uh, you know, the the past and figure out how to react to to things in that way. And I actually think that the um Adam Masseri has been with Facebook for 14 years. Mm -hmm. And so he was a part of when they rolled out the news feed. And everyone freaked out. They had hundreds of thousands of emails. People didn't like it. He was there when they started to actually add things into the newsfeed mm -hmm. that weren't from your friends. Nobody liked that. And so when you're building products, especially for this many people, it's really tricky to know how much to listen to because if you have hundreds of thousands of users or millions of users, there's always a significant amount of them complaining about something. And if you sit and listen to every single complaint, and furthermore, if you actually act on them, you end up building a product that's actually pretty bad. It just becomes this kind of mishmash of, um, you know, a product that's not really great at anything. Mm -hmm. So you have to take a stand and an opinion and just know that people are going to be mad at you. And it's really tricky to, to find that line between not listening or coming off as dismissive and actually like listening to as many of your users as you can. So let's just say a practical example. You personally, like how often are you looking at feedback? Is it once a week, once a month? Um, and, you know, how do you, how do you decide? Like, is it, is it just a gut feeling? Is it too many people um, complaining about a certain thing and you start to reevaluate? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's dependent on the stage of company. Um, you know, we're here early enough with this company where it's, um, you know, I'm 
I'm listening as often as I can get my hands on feedback, basically. Mm-hmm. If I'm taking like my past though, you know, take, take podium, for example, where we got up to having, um, quite a lot of customers. I basically would spend the first part of almost every morning walking around our sales floor and talking to the salespeople. They tended to be kind of like, you know, the, the first in line and interacting with the customers. And so I got to hear what they were Mm -hmm. facing, the objections, features we were missing, just kind of take in what was happening there. I did the same thing with our customer support people. So kind of represented the tail end of this process. And then we had decided on a, like a core set of product values that represented like our long-term bets and our long-term strategy. And so those things were, you know, a little bit informed by our gut of where Mm -hmm. we saw things going and informed by, you know, research and whatnot, but basically represented what we were most likely going to do no matter what we heard from our customers and kind of trying to mix all of those things together is, you know, where the the art comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately you hope that it just represents a vision of the future that people are going to like. Yep. All right, Doug. Um, you spend a lot of time on with our customers and our potential customers. How often, you know, we're, we're not in this stage, um, where we're at mass scale yet, where we have tons of users, but I have a hunch and based on conversations I've been on and, and had our potential users often have these types of requests of like what to do. How often do you hear feedback from customers when you're on sales calls with them? And like, what's kind of the, uh, how do you know when to listen and when to, you know, kind of just nod your head and say, that'd be cool. One of the ways that I can parse through whether or not I should be listening to a customer or not, if they inbounded to us, we didn't outbound to them and they get on, on a call or in a meeting with us and they are passionate and opinionated about a feature that is going to move their business forward. There's probably usually good signal that that's worth listening to there because they've already done the forethought you're not putting something in their lap in a meeting and then them responding to it they have done the the, you know thought and then they've been searching for that type of feature or that type of product that tends to be a better indicator than if you just said do you have any feedback for us on what this is doing and then that probably gets a little bit more into the henry ford if I'd have asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Mm-hmm. Like they don't, they really haven't put the mental energy into thinking about what they really want. They're just responding to your question. Yep. And it's, it, this is tough. I mean, there's a handful of features that I can think that I've been asked for by tens of thousands of people in aggregate um, at, at previous places I've worked at. Or even if I'm thinking about Adobe, there were certain things we did there where, you know, it was hundreds of thousands of people complaining about certain things. And there are certain, you know, elements that fall into that aspect of, like, yeah, we could give this to you, but we know that this would allow you to shoot yourself in the foot. And then ultimately, like, we're on the hook for you not having success with our product. And those are like, sometimes the hardest ones to tell people that they, they just can't have and we're never going to build because, mm-hmm. you know, 
they're taking the time to talk to you. They feel like they're doing you a favor to give you feedback. They're also paying you a lot of money in some cases. And you're, you just kind of have to sit there and say, sorry, we're just not going to build it. Mm. It's definitely where there's, you know, it's an art mm-hmm. um, and it depends what it is. But if it's something that we know we're not going to do, like 100%, and there were a handful of those things with, um, w- with Podium, we, we helped companies get reviews. And one of the most common things people wanted was um, an automatic way to respond to all of their reviews. They just wanted to press one button and have it automatically respond. Well, we knew that Google and these other platforms were going to penalize companies for doing that. They had not publicly stated that. Mm -hmm. And we also knew that, um, you know, the consumers kind of saw that as like a, uh, I don't know, like a, a a trust factor. Yeah. It looks inauthentic. Yeah. But we got asked that like every single time. And so in that case, yeah, it just, it was just a straight answer sorry, this is just not something we're going to build. And, you know, you try and explain the best you can, but I think sometimes when people are paying you enough money, they feel like they deserve anything they ask for. Yeah. I can think of, um, an example of when we had received some feedback at the previous company I worked at, we made doorbell video cameras and we had heard for years that people wanted customized chimes on their doorbells, specifically around holidays. All of our competitors were doing this thing. We didn't think, um, you know, for whatever reason, it just never got prioritized. Um, It was, you know, is it worth the developer time? Is it, there's no way to monetize this. And we actually went through a full exercise of, well, what if we sell them? We put them in there for a buck each. And uh, maybe this is a a subscription that we can add on. and it took years and years. And basically, uh, it actually came down to a product manager who just really believed that it was the right thing to do. And so they kind of got it spun up a little bit on the side at first. Um, but when we rolled out doorbell chimes to customers, the um, response was unbelievably good. Like, everyone loved it. Uh, we, st- you know, I still see stuff on social where people will post their chime and think it's funny. Um, and so I think that's a really good example of listening to the customer and also like, you don't, um, this might not have a very clear path to making money. This is more for brand building or for a customer experience type thing. And so you talked about Facebook earlier, like you're building features for quarter over quarter growth or to keep up with your competitors. but. Maybe that's another thing um, to get your thoughts on as, as someone who builds product. When do you push on stuff that's more just experience-based versus a strict monetization play? The best-in-class product managers will find the balance between shipping the essentials, the things that are core to the strategy, and mixing in enough other things for the customers to feel like there's not a long lag time and value being added. And so sometimes it could be, you know, your doorbell example, dark mode and apps is like a kind of common freebie one that product managers will turn to. But you want to pick off enough of these smaller little things that you have like a tight iteration feel. Um, especially if you're a younger company, it just makes people feel like you're really good at iterating and, and shipping quickly. 
what I think Facebook did in the early days that, you know, had some pros and some cons over time, they essentially set up every single team with metrics that they had to drive on. And then they had a technological framework in place that anyone could kind of ship experiments in without really getting approval. And there was guidelines, you know, to what they could do, but it was unique in that way. And that like a team of three engineers could say, okay, well, our, our core metric is daily active users or the number of times that someone clicks this very specific button or whatever it mm-hmm. is. And we're going to, just build these different things we think that will increase that one number. And so what they found out the hard way, and this is where you can go wrong by just going after one metric, is human nature gravitates towards negativity. Mm -hmm. So they found out that through their algorithms, if they rewarded negativity, that their, their metrics would go up. But as a net, it caused, you know, a lot of the problems that kind yep. of blew back in Facebook's face. Well, there's a ton of chatter about this. It doesn't seem like Facebook is going to um, back down to these changes. Um, I actually think I saw a TikTok and the guy said, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, every single time, and it's not just Facebook, but anytime a big company that has a lot of users, um, like, releases a new product. Everyone hates it for three months. They get used to it. They forget about it. And then they actually end up like loving the new version of it. So maybe that's what will happen here. And I'm sure that's what Facebook and Instagram are planning on. Um, Doug, you made a comment at lunch like, hey, this might not be great for the guy who wants to see what IPA his buddy's drinking at the local brewery. But um, it's fantastic for businesses. So. What do you think this means for social marketing in the future? I think if you look at TikTok, it is such an interesting way to be entertained. And I think you're seeing new versions of companies and media come out that is specifically geared toward providing you with one minute or 90 seconds worth of entertainment where you begin to become familiarized with these new companies, these new brands through these experiences. And Instagram shifting this way signals very clearly to me that content marketing needs to become the hub of every single business marketing strategy that there is, especially um, if TikTok and or Instagram can can begin to take a larger share, um, share of search because now your content becomes not just a place for people to become familiarized with your brand or with the types of areas that your brand plays in, as an example. And even just to give an example about this, um, we, we cover a host of topics on this podcast mm-hmm. that have nothing to do with what we do on a daily basis, but get a steady stream of inbound requests to talk to consumer or to talk to businesses that we do service based on them finding us talking about the world of Mm e-commerce. That is a playbook that I think is going to become central for every single business. Why is that good for consumers as well as businesses, in my opinion? Well, sometimes I get a really big chuckle by looking at 
um, organic social for brands. It is a masterclass in we don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Every, almost every brand. And mm-hmm. it's, you feel the necessity to post every day. Yep. You post stuff that has, like I follow a fashion brand. They're posting pictures of beautiful um, vistas and locations. Mm-hmm. Like, I know who you're talking about. What does this have to do with anything? <laughs> So it's almost like they're trying to figure out how do we make engaging content that people care about yep. that also puts our brand front and center. Well, this is where you get to from a marketer's perspective. Stop putting your brand front and center. Mm-hmm. If you just create engaging, real content that builds an audience, what's going to happen? People are going to discover your brand eventually because you're going to be tied back to it in some way. Well, that is authentic marketing at its core. And that's good for consumers as well yep. as it's good for, for businesses where the businesses that are going to get destroyed or chewed up and spit out in this process are businesses that don't understand and figure out quickly that building authentic content that benefits their user base is the key to this whole equation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just share a little bit about um, the Remy content strategy and just to give a little bit of the behind the scenes um, to the to our listeners. So we're on episode eight of this podcast. So we've been at it for about two, two months. Um, and you'll notice our, uh, our podcast is themed like adjacent or in the area of the type of product we build, but we don't exactly talk about our product all the time. Sometimes we might talk about features we're building, or I'm sure in the future we'll talk about other things that as we roll it out. Um, so I think some advice for people who are working at a brand and wondering, like, how do we get into this? Just find something that some people of your team can talk about with some sort of authority or some sort of expertise and have those people talk about it, whether it's on a podcast or TikTok videos um, or Instagram or where, wherever. Um, you will find people who connect to that content. And the first time, like, I'm just going to admit it. And we've had debates. Like we were like, I don't know, do we do this? Like, is it working? We're seven episodes in six episodes in, you know, a hundred views here, a hundred views there. And then we had a video that Brant posted that was not related to uh, what we do specifically. Um, but it was a really good piece of advice and it had a really insightful thing about, um, advertising and ad conversion. And all of a sudden, one day we were like, holy cow, 5,000 views on this video. And then 30 minutes later, 10,000. And I think it's capped out at 200,000 views and, and counting. Um, and then from there, we were, we've been posting videos to Instagram. And I would suggest that you post reels to Instagram right now because they are experimenting and they are rewarding you for posting that kind of content. And it's clear that their algorithm is not there yet. Yep. And so we had um, a brand new Instagram account and, you know, we're getting views on videos and, you know, maybe some of it's not exactly tuned and targeted, but our videos are getting out in front of a lot of people and it's producing a real amount of inbound request. Um, and so the leads that it can generate for you can be very meaningful um, because these are customers with intent. They're seeking you out. Um, I don't even think it was that easy to find Remy on your video, right? Like, no, not um, easy. But they I did. wasn't. Yeah, it, frankly, I wasn't really optimizing for it. Yep. 
And so from there, we've taken that and we've learned and say, hey, we need to make sure Remy's in all of our profiles and like, what are the ways people can, can get back to us? But um, so I'm just going to uh, kind of to add to that, Brant, one of the things that we hear as we talk to people about video-based content is, how do we get the content? It seems like hard. So any advice, um, you're definitely an expert here in where, what seems to be trending and catching on, but like, what's a simple example of what a brand owner could do that's maybe different than what they're doing now and makes them feel slightly uncomfortable, like, um, because this content isn't on brand or something like that. Yeah. I think a version of this debate has been going on for the last couple of years mm -hmm. and it's basically UGC versus brand content. And you have a whole bunch of people that for a whole bunch of reasons are entrenched in this world of building very highly produced videos with teams and videographers and equipment and, and all that. And I think that there's a place for some of that type of stuff, depending on the context. But largely, I think that most of the brands would be better served having content creators or the brand owners themselves just get their cell phone out and film things. Mm -hmm. And I think a great uh, example of this, we were working with a company that was selling uh, women's handbags and they were kind of targeted at new moms and, and, and um, that kind of demographic. And they basically put together this series where she walked around with her phone. And she just said, will you show me how you pack your, your bag, mm -hmm. open it up, showed the inside and showed, you know, kind of the context of how they were using this bag they were trying to sell. Yep. But it was interesting because everyone kind of put things in different places and, and for moms, especially new moms, it was something that they really valued. So, yep. you know, I don't think that this concept is really that novel, but it's not sinking in. Brands yep. have to do something that provides value. It has to be either entertaining or it has to provide some kind of education to their consumer base that they're actually interested in. It can't be purely, here's how our product works or here's, yep. you know, like it can't always be just about the product. Um, I think maybe maybe another one that's a little looser and further removed from the brand. Men's Health does this YouTube series. Yep. They basically go around to celebrities and they say, show me what's in your fridge. Yep. And they just open it up and talk. And I think, you know, if you're interested in your health, it is something that provides a lot of value. It's like, oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, <laughs> stopped eating meat. Yep. I found that kind of mm -hmm. interesting. Yep. And then you dig into why. And, you know, I think there's something like that for most brands that they could build even these little series around yep. to kind of, you know, do a recurring thing that they don't have to think too hard about coming up with novel content. Instead of trying to basically slap like product videos or some kind of product shot on top of like a trending TikTok sound, like that will, that just doesn't work. It might work one out of a hundred times, but it's just not a way to win on TikTok or, you know, any of these video based platforms at this point. Yeah. It actually reminds me of when we had Mike Harding on in episode four. Mike is a creative director for a really cool brand called Pura. And I've known Mike for a little while. And some of the stuff that was coming out of his mouth, I was like, whoa, I can't believe he's saying this. Because Mike is a very traditionally trained um, creative. He's amazing. And, um, you know, he's like, 
I remember when we started working on social stuff, there was a very big hesitation with our creative team because it was like, oh, it's not on brand and this and that. Um, but the things that Mike has to say about that content um, is really, really valuable. I would suggest that our listeners go back and, and listen to that. And it actually reminds me, um, you know, I think brand owners are afraid of coming off as unpolished. But what people really want is the authenticity. They want to see what your purse looks like and the wrappers in there and where you store your gum and whatever. Um, and it also, I think, is interesting that I just signed up for Be Real. You guys told me about that. Mm -hmm. But the whole purpose of that app is to show kind of your real life. And so, you know, the easy, the, the simple advice is don't be afraid as a brand owner to show things as they really are and to kind of have a lower, quote unquote, lower production value to your content. And I, I don't think it's saying make unpolished content or, or rush the content or any of that type of mm -hmm. stuff. I, I think if you go look at the very best TikTok accounts, they strike this nice balance of being very thoughtful about what they're doing, but they're just not spending all the time with kind of the extras, the extra equipment, the extra, you know, staff and all that type of mm -hmm. stuff. One of, one of my favorite accounts on TikTok to illustrate this, he's named American Baron. And he basically does skits with himself. <laughs> and so he'll sit in a booth of a restaurant and film himself from like both positions and he'll yep. just have a dialogue back and forth. Yep. It's, it's just incredible content to watch mm -hmm. because he's really clever. He leans into one of his strengths. He's like a good writer. Yep. And he just kind of has these conversations back and forth with himself that really make you think. Yep. But there's nothing about his video that I would describe as high production mm -hmm. value. But it still comes across as being like very thoughtful, well put together. I never watch one of them and think, okay, like there's some rough edges here. Yep. Doesn't even cross my mind. I think that's a really good point because you can, as the person here who is kind of helping put the content together for Remy and edit it and put it out there, you can go and read things online that just say, get it out there. Don't spend a lot of time on it. Don't worry too much. I think there's truth to that, um, but it's a learning process. You, you need to go out and just get content out there. I think one suggestion that is um, also helpful is if you're afraid to put things on your main account for your brand, make a fake one like that has no followers or it's private or like whatever. So you can just see what it looks like. You can go through the process of creating the content and kind of honing in the way that the look and feel of how you want it to be. Um, that can be very helpful as well. So uh, prior to Remy, I was running marketing for a company called Vivint and we spent on kind of our first brand campaign. It was a huge bet for the brand. Um, millions of dollars centered around Snoop Dogg. Mm -hmm. And we went out and shot him. It's been almost two years now. V very high production cost video. He did an amazing job. He's a total pro. And um, so that was a lot of money. Like the production, I don't think people totally understand on these brand shoots like this where you get an influencer. This isn't tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. This is hundreds of thousands of dollars just for one day. There was and a literal village 
a literal hundred, and this was in the height. This is November of 2020, the height of COVID. Yep. Outside, everybody wearing masks, and there were still a hundred people at this house in this neighborhood. And then we put paid ad dollars behind the ad units and did a bunch of brand advertising, and it was really successful. Do you want to know what was more successful? When a bear mm-hmm. tried to attack some dogs on someone's porch. <laughs> and it had a vivid watermark and it had a hundred million views on just TikTok alone when the girl went and pushed the bear off the yep. deck. And then when a bobcat mm-hmm. attacked a woman getting into her car. Yep. And then when a lightning bolt struck. And one of the things that happened is we realized that some of the videos that were being recorded on vivid cameras didn't have a vivid watermark. And we went and asked the product managers, like, why is that? He's like, oh, we thought it was a little invasive. Well, you just took literally the best branding element of our whole company away. And so sometimes, and then what we did is we took that really viral content that millions upon millions of people viewed and then built branded campaigns, highly produced ad spots that we could go run on YouTube or wherever around that content and kind of trigger people's memories. And it was very, very successful. I think the lesson for me there was it's there's not one way to one right way to go about doing it, mm-hmm. um, but you really need to push yourself to think about how can we make organic, lowly produced content that is very impactful and test it and try it and see what happens, and. Um, I think that's going to be a really good outcome for most brands over spending a huge amount of money trying to build a brand campaign. Mm-hmm. I, I think if you're talking about a company like Vivint, even some of that branded content with Snoop Dogg makes a lot of sense. I think that a lot of brands I've talked to in the past are not anywhere near that ballpark in terms of size of company. Yep. I mean, we're talking about companies that make 10 million a year, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more. The amount of money they think they need to spend on production, I, it, it breaks my brain every time I talk to them. They have similar fully staffed positions to um, companies, honestly, sometimes even more than companies I worked at that were like public companies, mm-hmm. where they have full-time videographers and full-time you know, like design, like uh, production designers and all this type of stuff. And they sell like baby clothes or something. And there's some kind of weird disconnect that I think, you know, as part of our job, we have to help people understand that it, it, it almost is like an ego thing that, you know, they have to kind of get over that. Like they're, they're not quite there yet. They're almost kind of like playing a meme of a big company. by trying to produce this overly produced content, but they would just be better served by putting their ego aside and making the simple, you know, UGC style content. I think um, one other, one thing that came to mind as you were talking about this, I actually think it's important that the brand owners or people who I guess, you know, are at the top of the company are involved in the content process um, themselves. Don't just go out and hire some young kid. Maybe do that, but you need to understand this. And I think if you understand this or you participate in the content 
yourself, like being on the camera or on the podcast or whatever it is, I think you'll get a lot more bang for your buck than just kind of like having someone, hiring someone and having them kind of tell you what to do and they're following just random trends. What I think most people underestimate too is that the internet is so large at this Mm -hmm. point, it almost doesn't matter what your personality is. Mm -hmm. There are a large amount of people out there that have the potential to connect with you and whatever unique set of qualities, you know, make up your personality. If I was kind of like looking at myself, like just based off of radio and TV personalities, I'm not thinking like, oh, I'm made to go talk, you know, on a podcast or any of that type of stuff. It's just not like how I would think about it. But just some of the like comments I'm getting, people are like, oh, like this is a unique perspective or I, I like what you're saying. And I think even if you take, you look at someone like Lex Friedman, who's kind of popped up in the podcast world recently, Sam Harris, all these people have these this really monotone voice. Mm-hmm. They're not people you'd pick out of a crowd. It's like, you're going to be a star yeah. on podcast or social media, but they lean into just who they are and it works. And my suspicion is if brand owners did this, they would find that a lot of their personality that comes through in the product they've made actually would be appreciated as they express themselves on camera or on a podcast or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And they just kind of need to try it out. It will feel incredibly authentic as well Mm -hmm. because you really have poured your heart and soul into developing that product and to tie it all the way back to kind of the beginning of this Instagram thing. And what you're basically getting now is two of the largest social media channels on the planet are going to be supportive, trying to push your content forward if it's something that people want to watch, which is so helpful in trying to build something. Yeah, I want to I want to hit on a couple of ways that like more tangible ways that brands can actually dive into making some of this content without spending a lot of money or time. I think low-hanging fruit options are working with existing customers, whether that's paying them, having them people that you know close by, interviewing them, kind of having like the unboxing videos, the UGC style content. I think that's one place to start. Another place that I've seen some brands have success is getting into the behind the scenes. And so you move into thinking about how do I document what goes into making our product and less about how do I create an ad or how do I create like the perfect explanation of what we do. And I think that a lot more people are interested in the behind the scenes than these brands really think about at times. I would just say here, um, that I that I think is helpful if you're trying to get in this space and maybe you don't spend a lot of time on TikTok or, or Instagram, just go find some people you like that are making good content. But just find some like 100,000 follower accounts and do what they're doing. Like copy them at first, you know, if you need to, or draw cues from those people. Um, I think that can help kind of get over the learning curve pretty quickly. Brent, you talk about UGC. It's super effective. It's super important. Um, As someone who ran product marketing at Vivint for a while, we did find it's kind of challenging to collect that content from customers. How how should brand owners be thinking about collecting UGC? What are some easy ways to get it done? We had success with other brands where we basically segmented their top customers, grabbed the top 10% out of Shopify. You can sort by sales volume. We messaged them, 
And we actually gave them not a script, but we gave them a bit of direction of what we were looking for, like a mm-hmm. couple options. Mm-hmm. Just giving them the options um, increased the response rate by quite a lot. I think a lot of people just don't want to think about how to structure what they're going to say. And so it was like, answer these two or three questions on a video. Yeah. Something as simple as that can go a long way in getting pretty good UGC back. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us for episode eight of Modern Commerce. And we'll catch you next week.